Welcome, welcome my friends to another episode of Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm going to get right to it. Um, I don't want to waste any time. Kim Masters is the person I'm speaking to today. You may know her because she has a radio show on KCRW in Los Angeles and a podcast called The Business. She's an award-winning reporter. She's with The Hollywood Reporter uh, right now. She used to be with The Washington Post, believe it or not. Um, nobody knows show business like Kim Masters. I'm just going to tell you that across the board. Uh, in our conversation, we talk about politics, of course, but we talk about talent and Netflix and Hollywood being a place of relationships. She talks about visiting the set of Titanic. She talks about a great conversation she had with Matt Damon. Um, so it's just so much fun. And she ha- knows she's forgotten more about show business than I'll ever know. And um, it's going to be enlivening, enlightening, and entertaining for sure. You should also know it's a little noisy. Ms. Masters is very busy, very popular. Her phone dings a lot. People come and go. Uh, There's a dog. So I've done some editing, um, but I really appreciate that she took time out of an incredibly busy schedule to speak with me. Um, Take time out of your busy schedule and make sure that you get some Abe's muffins. They are allergen-free and they taste fantastic. Um, We did do this conversation after the seditious riot at the Capitol, but before the inauguration. So that is talked about a little bit. Um, Hang, you know, at the end of this, we also talk about Harvey Weinstein. You know, um, Ms. Masters was one of the uh, reporters instrumental in exposing a lot about the Me Too movement. Um, So you're really going to want to listen to her podcast when you get a chance. It's called The Business. But right now you can listen to her speak with me on Is That Really Legal? Kim Masters, thank you so much for being on uh, Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin? I really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, you know, I've been listening to The Business, I don't know how long, it was recommended to me, but probably during the time when I used to get Variety Weekly, uh, and I don't anymore, and there was a big change in showbiz journalism, at least in my experience, that... Uh, a lot of people seem to get things off of Twitter or internet purposes. And it feels to me that people who don't know you are really missing out on something. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I don't know if they are, but uh, I appreciate the endorsement. Yeah. Well, first of all, on your show, you often have something called the banter. Yes. That's a weekly feature. And can you talk about the banter uh, and what you like about it and who you include in it? I'm very proud of the banter uh, because it was my invention when I started doing the show. I think, what is it, maybe 11 years ago? There used to be a thing called the Hollywood News Roundup, which I felt was very, very static. And (laughs) it's not exactly the vibe of the banter, but I I thought about how engaging it is. And I haven't listened to it in a long time, but. Howard Stern and Robin Quivers had this engaging banter. And so I thought that's what we need. We need to have some more back and forth, maybe some humor, some analysis. And the initial person who did that banter was the late Matt Holzman, who actually invented the show. 
But Matt was a wonderful, wonderful, difficult, cranky human being. He was not, uh, he was a great radio guy. He was a real KCRW lifer. Uh, he, he died this past year, sadly, of cancer. Uh, not old enough aged, or not that, you know, not that I'm saying there's an age, but he was not out of his 50s. And right. Matt was, uh, he was, he knew that he wasn't uh, an, an expert on entertainment business or a, a reporter covering entertainment business. And so there, this came a time when he was, I don't know where, and so we asked John Horn, who was at the LA Times then, he's um, on a, in public radio now, actually, <laughs> uh, at a different station. He, we asked John Horn to fill in and the quality changed and Matt saw it right away to, to his credit. He fired himself from being the co-banterer. He said, I'm never doing it. He just literally said, I'm never doing the banter again. <laughs> and we did it with John until he was offered his own show at KPCC. Uh, and, you know, John was great, but John also, unlike Matt, my current usual banter buddy, John was a film reporter and the banter, especially with the advent of the streamers, which hadn't happened yet, but just generally we did, there were times when television was the big news and that's where Matt, you know, once John went off, I got Matt to be the co-banterer and Matt as the editor of the, the former editor now editorial director of the Hollywood Reporter he he would deal with all aspects of the business so in a way that really I think made the banter and people really liked the banter with me and John John Horn and me but Matt and I I think also have a certain kind of you know back and forth and Matt it's Matt can really bring that that whole overview and he reads things that I haven't read you know so it's a good synergy and you know we, we just sit we do it very spontaneously we kind of gather and say what are we gonna the day before Caitlin Parker our producer will send out an email saying these seem to be the stories of the week sometimes Matt or I will say no what about this sometimes by the time we sit down and to record something else has happened sometimes after we record something happens and we have to do the emergency banter update right. uh but we just try to figure out what we're going to chat about sometimes i'm annoyed like we just did the end of year mega banter and i realized we never talked about bob Iger, and i feel like we really should have and so sometimes i'm look back and think well i wish i'd said this but i think the spontaneity i always say to matt because sometimes when we get online together he'll start talking and I'll say, no pre-bantering, no pre-bantering. <laughs> well, that's what I felt like uh, when we just got together, I, we spoke very briefly because I feel like um, I, I didn't write a ton of notes. Uh, there's so much to talk about with you because show business is like every other business or industry in upheaval, even more than usual um, yes. because, of the, because of the pandemic. But before the pandemic, you were talking about, you know, the movie business being in crisis because, uh, you know, funding for uh, movies was problematic. There were tremendous personnel problems in, I'm not even talking about the really big ones, which I'll talk about later. But, um, you know, there's such a family kind of feeling in a strange way about show business because there's all these players that people who follow this business sort of get to know. But yeah. I feel like one of the things that you do so well is you really get to know them, but you seem to be able to bypass the PR gloss. 
especially in a town where in many ways they don't want you to see anything they don't want you to see. Oh, they for sure don't. Yeah. And you, you know, you had, for instance, um, the daughter of Roy Disney, I think recently. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if you contacted Disney, the company and said, you know, I'd like to talk to somebody about what's going on there. She's not, she's not really affiliated with them uh, other than as a stockholder, I suppose. But, you know, you're not going to get the information she's giving you. Oh, yeah. Disney, I, I know for a fact, was quite unhappy that we had her on the show. But you're you're willing to do that and and not be concerned about access, which seems to concern a lot of political reporters, which seems to have been a disease over the last four years. And I know we don't have eight hours to talk about this, but I, I'm confident you could talk about that. But can you speak a little to access journalism and how you're able to do what you do without your concerns about it? Or maybe you have concerns about it and you just don't care. I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I always have concerns, but I also don't care. I mean, I care, but I, well, I'll tell you back in the dawn of time, I spent a very unhappy four months, I think it was working for Steve Brill at the American Lawyer, which you might be familiar with. I mean, Steve Brill was a brilliant, and I, he's still around, the kind of sadistic boss, very sadistic boss. But, but during that little period of time when I worked for him, and he had, he had really hired people who went on to gigantic careers in journalism. I mean, my, my peers working at American Lawyer you know, one of them was Steve Adler, who just is re retiring at Reuters. And there's Jim Stewart, who's at the New York Times. Jill, um, Jill, I'm blanking on her last name, who ran the New York Times until it went south. I mean, these were people who were working at American Lawyer, that the kind of people that Steve had assembled. And the reason I'm talking about this is because Steve approached covering these big law firms in Manhattan and elsewhere by terrorizing them, basically, uh, he would, you know, he started out and he'd say, well, what do you pay your associates? And at the time it was like, how dare you? But the truth is law firms are pretty porous. It's pretty easy to break into a law firm. And uh, I don't mean like, like physically, I'm talking about, you know, there's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of ways to get inside the politics of a law firm. Absolutely. And, and Steve did it. I think it was very negative for the law, legal business because it became this insane thing about, of you know, he put them in this competitive mode that they hadn't been in before and wasn't healthy, but, but effective, it was effective journalistically. And I really did decide consciously what happened with Steve is he initially had them all outraged and they all hated him. And by the time he was done, they were begging him to go to lunch with them and trying to make a relationship. And I started in Hollywood and it was absolutely my deliberate goal to be that nightmare <laughs> to the entertainment industry and make these guys deal with me. And I knew it was working. You know, I always tell this story that when Jeffrey Katzenberg called me and he was at Disney in those days running the Disney film studio TV, I think he said, you know, every time I see your name on a call, my call sheet, my stomach starts to hurt. And I thought... <laughs> I'm winning, you know, and it was really a struggle because these guys are not, it's not like covering Washington, which I have done, or law firms, because, you know, there's no Democrats versus Republicans, where it's the battle lines are mostly drawn and, and there's issues where you've got 
you know, lobbying groups that are going to leak stuff to you. Washington is, you know, there's all this thing about Washington. I mean, I covered, as you may or may not know, I was at the Post for six years, seven years, six years, uh, and doing political stuff, not, not primarily doing Hollywood stuff. And it was such a, I mean, I don't want to insult anybody. It was a piece of cake compared to Hollywood. It was a piece, this is the most difficult beat I've ever covered. And I've covered a lot. And it's because, you know, Jim Giannopoulos was at Fox before and now he's at Paramount. And everybody knows that there's no fixed, there's very few, there, there are the epic feuds. You know, there was a period of time of Geffen versus Eisner or something like that. But by and large, there, you, I mean, figuring out where those fault lines are, that is a real study and it takes people talking to you. And I really just tried to be, uh, 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 honestly, a nightmare. <laughs> well, say, many people would say I succeeded <laughs> in the industry. It's interesting that you talk about politics in DC and that beat. My first introdu introduction into actual journalists, uh, I met a guy named Martin Tolchin at the New York Times. And I was graduating from my college, Union College in Schenectady. Um, they had let me go there to DC to meet with lots of people to work on something for my thesis. And he took me around on his rounds through the Capitol building, which is very strange thinking of that today, given what a couple of days ago what happened. But um, we were walking and he ran into Barney Frank, who I just knew from being on TV. And I never saw someone so deftly start a conversation, meaning Mr. Tolchin, and suddenly a notebook that I had no idea where it was just magically appeared with another a pencil and he started jotting notes. And the way he engaged with Barney Frank was just so deftly done. I was in awe. And then we went to see Senator Glenn. I actually shook John Glenn's hand. And for people who are young, they will never understand how important that was. And I met some other big people. The, the bottom line was, though, that was it was clear that there's a place where all these political reporters go and they can engage for people who haven't been to LA. I'm a New Yorker who doesn't hate LA. I've been there. Um, but LA is really spread out, at least from my point of view in show business, when I acted and if I, I, I had some time in LA, you could have an audition in Studio City and then you have to go to Burbank and then maybe if you're lucky, you have another audition that might take you to Santa Monica, of all places. And that's a day. And so I, for you, I, I assume. Day, yeah. I'm sorry, what's that? Half of that is a day. <laughs> right. So for you and your beat, I'm assuming it's got to be a lot of phone calls and emails. Oh, and, and more and more. <laughs> It's funny because I was at, I, you know, when I was starting out, it took me a year to get anywhere at all. And it was a really difficult, I mean, it was kind of a miserable ordeal trying to break into this community. Uh, and I used to think, oh my God, I wish I had like so-and-so's cell phone. You know, I wish it would, wouldn't that be incredible? And not that there were cell phones in the beginning, probably there weren't, but when the cell phones be, or their home number, you know? Right. And now I'm like, some of these guys call me at like eight o'clock on a Friday night. And I feel like, dude, are there no boundaries? They're calling me on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm like, oh, maybe they're going to tell me about a huge story. And they're just venting. And I feel like it reminds me of when Jeffrey Katzenberg got fired. And uh, I was sent out. I was in D.C. at that point. But I had this deal with Vanity Fair. And they sent me out to cover it. And I had 
the exclusive Vanity Fair interview with Jeffrey and the exclusive with Michael Eisner. And there, but they were so hopped up. And this is not the only time this has happened, but they were just relentlessly calling me to the point where I was like, I'm not even going to pick up the phone. I'm done with you people. You need to get help. And this has happened on other stories where people in the beginning that I would have thought I'll never have access to, I'm like, please lose my number. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> it's like too much. <laughs> but it's great to have gotten to a place. I don't have every person that I would like to have in my my little world. And it's a constant thing to try to make sure that you're sourced as well as you can be. And you always have that moment of thinking, I'm not sourced on this and I don't know who to ask. And then you sort of think more creatively and think, you know, I bet that guy knows or this person will be helpful. But, uh, you know, you, it, it's really been, and now I feel like it's all happening again. I mean, there was the first generation that's fading now, the, the Ron Meyer, Jeffrey Katzenberg generation. And now there's these new guys from Silicon Valley and the digital world. And I almost feel like, do I have the stamina to try to deal with these guys? Because they're not coming up through the old Hollywood way. They don't speak Hollywood. And we see the consequence, you know, with at Warner's where they did a thing that they're now, that has damaged Warner's in my opinion, as I've made very clear. Uh, you know, they don't understand how the, you hear these Silicon Valley types saying, yeah, streaming's the future. and Jason Kyler so bold to put all the movies on HBO Max and you're like, you don't understand what you're doing. And I, you know, right away, you know, you're just not going to revolutionize Hollywood that way. They come in thinking that we are going to dump all these stupid old rules and we're reinventing the wheel. It's not like that. Talent I, is not a monolith that's going to cave on your demand. All you have to do is see something where the writing doesn't exist and it doesn't matter how much PR, how quickly they can get it to you. It's irrelevant. People will watch for five minutes and go, well, I, I, I have so many better choices. You know, you have something like the Queen's Gambit, and I'm not, I don't have stock in anything. So, you know, I've heard, from, it might have even been from you, there were over 60 million downloads of that uh, particular show. It's five or six episodes. The production values are as good, if not better, than many films that we've seen recently. The writing is fantastic. It's based on a great novel, great acting. Um, but that is an example of how it works when it works. And it, I don't know that the technology is what drove that. I think what you're talking about is the talent drives that. Is that your experience or how would you? I mean, yes. I, I mean, I think that, you know, I don't think the Queen's Gambit works if you put it on CBS, like the way it works on Netflix. But, uh, but, at the, but at, you know, going to the origin story, there is nothing without creative talent. I'm, you know, that I, I made this point in the thing I wrote for Hollywood Reporter, you know, the Kyler keeps saying, uh, customer, the customer, the customer, we have to please the customer and we'll win with, we focus on the customer. And I'm like, dude, content is king. That's what Sumner Redstone said. And many people have said, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Kassenberg wrote that in their big memos that they wrote. Cont and you know what? It is king. And good luck selling to the customer. I mean, I, you know, junk. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they do have too many choices. There's too much competition. So I think a lot of people are going to get hurt, you know, in, in trying to do. It's, it is a version, except that in this case, well, no, it's, 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 it is a version trying uh, 
these all outsiders that have come into this industry since I've, you know, since time began, where, you know, for a while it was, you know, Coca-Cola or Transamerica, and then, and then it was this one and that one, and they all get burned to pieces. This is a bit different. It's not completely parallel, but the ignorance of these outside companies that come in thinking that they're smarter than everybody in Hollywood, uh, they, and then they, they get destroyed. I mean, we saw it with the Germans. There was a round of German investors. You know, it, it's happened again and again and again. I mean, I hold, the whole hit book Hit and Run is about Sony that getting brutalized and thinking that they would just hire John Peters and Peter Goober to run Columbia. And it, that was, they were the real guys to run Hollywood. That's exactly how Hollywood has ripped people off. Now, Hollywood is not so much the uh, perpetrator as it has been in the past, but because Hollywood is kind of partially a victim now because <laughs> these guys have so much money and power. Because if you, you know, I mean, Apple can withstand more than Coca-Cola could, I think. And Coca-Cola could withstand all the financial losses that they suffered in the industry. But the PR is so disproportionately bad when there's bad news that people start thinking something terrible is happening at Coca-Cola because of a movie that's not even a rounding error. You know, this is something that, that so I, I, I think, you know, the they're going to have, there's going to be a learning curve. And I, we've, I've talked about this a lot, you know, I, 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 we've seen it with Netflix. Netflix has evolved its behavior a lot since they started coming into this industry and they're still weird and culty, but uh, they nonetheless have become tons more talent friendly uh, than they were. And I think because they realized that it ain't going to work if you were going to dump all over powerful talent that you want to bring in. Yeah, and it seems like more than any other streaming service, they have embraced talent and not necessarily, well, old school talent. You know, there's the Scorsese film that they did. <laughs> That's a whole show in and of itself, I suppose, to talk about that. But recently, Mr. Clooney, uh, I believe his movie came out on Netflix. Yes, it um, did. And they seem, there's a culture there that they brag about. But then they also recently had some people leave there. I don't know if that was in line with their culture or not. Yeah, um, I mean, they have this statement that they're very proud of, that you, they have this uh, strategy of, you know, constantly reviewing whether you're worth your keep. And I think, again, they, they, it was a mistake. They got rid of Cindy Holland, who had been a big part of building up and, you know, Netflix, what Netflix is. And... This again goes to this relationship question. Hollywood does run largely on relationships. And I think even if they were no longer pursuing the Cindy Holland strategy and they were more obsessed with international because Netflix really its growth comes from overseas now. And so they wanted to go with Bella Bajaria who had been running that. And you know, the two of them were incompatible, but I, I think about what Comcast did when they acquired NBC Uni you know, Ron Meyer had a, this very high level job and a dumber company would have just put him out to pasture right away. But I think Comcast took advice and listened to people in the community here, upper level people. And they decided that they really just had to honor, put him in a place. I mean, it's blown up because he had a, a scandal, but for a long time, they maintained goodwill with the industry just by being respectful. He, they didn't give him the most important job. In the, I mean, he had a title. 
but he, everybody knew he wasn't really running. He was, you know, he was doing things, greasing things. He was about relationships, but they didn't just kick him to the curb until they had to because of a scandal. But to me, if they could have found a way to do that with Cindy Holland at Netflix, that's the smarter move. You know, you don't, you don't take somebody who's kind of really respected and admired and do that. And I think that it's probably caused a lot of upset, the unnecessary upset at Netflix. Um, again, I don't know, maybe she absolutely could not have been negotiated with, but I feel like there's a way other than just blowing our, you know, blowing up the whole situation that would be more the Hollywood way where you show some respect, you know, to people who have been, uh, who are well regarded in the industry and have, and have those all important relationships. Do you think that because the technology has driven these companies that are now players, that they, uh, the, the, the art of Hollywood seems to get lost when it's all just numbers and technology. It doesn't work, in, in my opinion, you know, and if they've got two execs at Netflix now, even though they did that with Cindy Holland, and I think, as I said, it caused a lot of ill will. Uh, I mean, lucky for them, other people are generating even more ill will. <laughs> but uh, you have Scott Stuber, who was an executive at Universal and then a producer, pure Hollywood guy, running film at Netflix and Bella came from NBC. They've hired legacy media people. And it's kind of ironic now along comes, you know, again, Warner's blowing out everybody who's old Warner's legacy media and George Clooney will have plenty to say about that in the interview that we have coming with him. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're destroying their institutional memory. It's a purge. And I think they'll pay. I think they'll pay a, num a price. I, I want to shift the conversation, if I may, backwards. Do you find that your, I'll call it an East Coast sensibility with being from DC, having started your work out at the Post, um, attending Bryn Mawr, which seems so antithetical to Los Angeles, um, did that did that hinder you? Did it give you a leg up? Did it do neither or both? What What do you think? I think it helped me. A lot of people in power in this business are from the East Coast. Certainly when I started, I mean, I started covering legal stuff before I covered, first I covered education, then I covered law. And then I was sort of dropped into Hollywood. I think what, I think, you know, I think a little East Coast experience and education is good for everybody. Do you see them as really that big, the differences between New York and Los Angeles in show business? Well, I, I haven't really lived in New York except during the months that Steve Brill made me live there. <laughs> um, a lot of people you know, in the Hollywood Reporter in the, in the past you know, several years where somebody is sent out from New York and it's supposed to be temporary and somehow they never leave <laughs> that first winter and they're like, mm, maybe it's not so bad here. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I think it's I, one thing that has been a, a constant problem at various places I've worked is that the East Coast looks down, like at NPR, this was, you know, constant, that anybody here is stupid or the, the stupider, they're smarter. And you, you know, I'm sort of, I sort of feel like there are times when I have to be like, you know, you need to understand if you're gonna, not that I am disrespecting people from the West Coast, but if you're gonna get their attention, you have to be like, I am from the East Coast, so don't give me that. But they still give it to you, they still act 
as if, you know, I rem I'll use an example. I, I worked for three, also not the happiest years at Time Magazine, uh, where, you know, I was, I should never have agreed to work. Um, I mean, now it's much better in terms of the management than it was when I worked there. Uh, but uh, when I was at Time, you know, they were, uh, they sent me to cover Titanic, which was being, you know, the making of Titanic. And that was actually one of the great fun things I've done in this job ever being on a, on the so-called Titanic with Jim Cameron in this crazy hours long tour of the whole thing. It was amazing. But, um, it, you know, everybody thought Titanic was going to be a disaster because it was expensive and Jim kept missing budgets and deadlines. And once you went on that set, you just got this vibe, like, hold on, this might actually be, you, you can feel when a crew, even if they bitched about Jim Cameron, which they did, and all right. crews do, because sure. he's Jim Cameron, but you could feel the kind of, they were excited and proud about what they were doing. And so I started to signal back, you know, I think this is going to work. And time, they just knew better. They were on the East Coast and they knew, I mean, I remember NPR telling me Spanglish was going to be an Oscar movie. And I was like, Spanglish <laughs> is not going to be an Oscar movie. And they're like, well, how would you know that? And my favorite actually story like that is when I started at NPR, they had not really had anybody who knew Hollywood at all. And um, they, they said, well, okay, this was like November of that year, whatever it was. And they said, well, we just really want to be on top of things and we're going to have a big meeting with all the shows and we want you to be the one who like tells us what movies are going to be in Oscar contention. So when we had the meeting, I said, you know, if you want to know what's going to be an Oscar contention, this year is really an easy one. It was the third Lord of the Rings. So I, I said, the third Lord of the Rings is going to win best picture. And there was this just complete silence. And finally, this guy who was running All Things Considered said, wait, do people like those movies? <laughs> and I said, the movie is going to gross a billion dollars, which it did. And I don't know. Said, do people like the Beatles? Like, it's just said, like, that's a crazy question. Sorry. Done. He said, um, what if the story really is that people go even though they don't like the movie? <laughs> and I said, I, and I had said to them, you know, at the time, I said, the movie will be Lord of the Rings, and I've already talked to New Line, and we can have anything we want. Whatever we want is that. You want Peter Jackson, you want Ian McKellen, whatever you want, just tell me your dream, and it, I can make that happen. I was so waiting for applause, you know, like, oh, wow, we got you for the right perfect moment here. And... <laughs> And they were like, is it possible people go because and they don't like it? And I'm like, you know, here's the thing. If they don't like it, they don't go. <laughs> but I, I, in that moment, and I was really new at NPR, I thought, I'm in so much trouble. These people are like on another planet and they're not listening. Uh, and of course, we did do the Lord of the Rings piece and the movie won. But they never, ever maybe toward the end of my tenure there, they started to believe me, you know, but I still got Spanglish as an Oscar movie. I'm like, no, it absolutely isn't. And they were like, well, how would you even know that? And I'm like, trust me. <laughs> I mean, it was so, and I hate that attitude. And, and I, I always get it from, you know, whatever paper is East Coast or publication or radio, whatever, there's this patronizing, it's a long answer, but it really has been an ongoing frustration. Like, 
why don't you listen to me? Like, why would you even hire me if you don't want to listen to me? I think well, I think a lot of us have had the experience of you get retained or hired to be the expert in something. And I'll speak as an attorney or when I was a literary agent and you get hired to do this thing and then you come back and you tell them something and then they it's it's as if you're a stranger and, it, and, and then they disregard everything. Then why did they spend the money? Why did they take the time? I, really, I, it's not. Answer that they think they, and you know, you'd have somebody at time going out for a drink at the club and coming back thinking, well, I heard about the Spanglish and that's an Oscar. And they're like, Jesus Christ, go ahead, do your Spanglish piece. I'm not doing it, but, <laughs> or I'll do it, but I, you know, it ain't, mm -mm. I'm not saying there's nothing. I mean, we've had James L. Brooks on the show. Of course, he's a great artist. But have you ever had Adam Sandler on? No, we never have because um, nothing. I mean, I'd be interested in having him on. Wasn't he in Spanglish? Am I? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's things, not me. Um, <laughs> two things that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes hesitant to, to book uh, an actor or act, you know, on the show because a lot of actors you know, there are many exceptions, you know, obviously somebody like Ben Affleck is a multi, you know, multi-talented, you know, we, Matt Damon, I accidentally booked Matt Damon. That was really quite funny. I was talking to him for a, a piece. And I said at the end of the, and we got into this, I was told he had 10 minutes and that was it. And he was on set and it was very important and 10 minutes. And so I get, and it was first thing in the morning and I get the call and I'm scrambling to do questions about this piece. It was a piece about Cameron Crowe. And, um, and Matt Damon and I, who I'd never talked to him before, we just start chatting and 10 minutes pass and 20 minutes pass. 20, and I said to him, don't you, I mean, I'm not trying to give up this conversation because it's fun, but don't you have to be like, and he's like, ah, <laughs> I can take a break. It's fine. And we keep talking. And at this meanwhile, I'm dressing and getting in the car. And I finally, am I had a dentist appointment. <laughs> I'm sitting there in the car <laughs> and I'm like, it's like, what's that noise? And I'm like, it's the valet. Cause I kind of have to get into the dentist's office. <laughs> and I, but I said, can you do my show? He was supposed to direct a movie at that point, which he never has done. But I'm like, we would love to have you on when you direct your movie. And he said, sure, sure, I'll do it. And I thought, yeah, whatever, Hollywood chatter. And right, I get right. to the studio and my producer was like, Matt Damon's people just called and wants to know when you want to do the interview. And, and I was like, oh, heck, I wasn't even talking about now, but I'm not turning back. Matt Damon's so smart. So we yeah. actually had him on the show and, and I just made it about processing becoming a gigantic movie star. And he's smart enough that it was great, you know, but, but sometimes, you know, an actor is not a great idea. And, you know, like we had Sally Field with Michael Showalter. That's a great idea uh, that, that because he's kind of not the most chatty guy. She's a little God bless her lover actressy and they really balanced each other out. It was perfect. Uh, but you know, one some of the we've had a, actresses on, and I won't say where it was just not. <laughs> and you, we really think, you know, is can this person talk articulately? Are they going to shut down? Uh, you know, you don't know what you're going to get all the time. But we sometimes, if we feel like I don't know that Adam Sandler is a 
chatty guy who likes to talk to reporters. You know? Right. No, I, I could see that. It's funny you mentioned two people that have actually met. Sally Field borrowed my computer right after <laughs> Hurricane Sandy because she had to charge her phone. And I was in Chelsea in New York uh, in a bar charging my computer. And she charged her phone on my computer. She was very lovely about it. Sure. Um, and I was an extra for a couple of days or background actor, I should say, for a couple of days on um, Goodwill Hunting. I had auditioned for the assistant to the professor. I didn't get it, but I did get to work on that. That was a long time ago. Very interesting. Yeah. Who would have? Yeah. Uh, at that time, you know, uh, Mr. Affleck and Mr. Damon were barely known. And that, of course, was yeah, the beginning remember, of they were just kids. a rocket ship since then. Yeah. Um, look, I, I'm a lawyer. We're also running out of time. I would be absolutely neglectful if I didn't bring up probably one of the biggest stories you ever dealt with. It feels like the Me Too movement got really a boost thanks to you and thanks to your coverage. I'm not, look, I'm not shining you up. I've already had you on. I have enough material. <laughs> so I'm not worried about that. It's just accurate. Um, you specifically, uh, I don't know if the word outed, let's just say you reported on Harvey Weinstein, you reported accurately to the point where you got in, he entered into an altercation with you in public. So that's your story. I'll let you tell it. How did it all, it I know this is not a lot of time, but how yeah, did it all it start? A, it wasn't a time's up story. And I honestly don't remember what the story was. He was always in one controversy or another. I had written some, and this was the first time I met him and it was a lunch at the Peninsula Hotel and it was about 20 years, I think Ronan Farrow and I tried to work backwards and figure out when that would have happened. And we thought it was probably 2000. It was a great interview with Mr. Farrow, by the way. Oh, thank you. That turned out to be really like, I was sort of really crazed and I was leaving for Finland the next day and I was like, oh, why am I doing this? And then it turned out to be so therapeutic. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing that interview. Uh, but um, Harvey, so anyway, Harvey's PR people set up, you know, this lunch because we hadn't met and he was obviously figuring out that I could be a problem. You know, that's how you get to meet people in Hollywood if you're me. You know, figure out you could be a problem. And, and what do they think they're going to accomplish? Oh, they want to start a relationship. And there, it is always good to have a relationship. I mean, I could show you a chapter of Hit and Run that was completely revised because the subject of that chapter, who was John Dolgen, who had worked at Sony, he hadn't talked to me. And I just kind of tried to figure out what had gone wrong with him at Sony. And then it, he sort of, I could really teach this in a class if I still had the draft, but he finally, I didn't know him. And he finally, he heard me asking around and he finally cracked. We became very friendly actually in the end, but he uh, sat down with me and explained to me what happened and everything changed. I understood completely what it, you know, from his point of view. So it's always good to communicate unless you just did something terrible and you don't have a good defense like Harvey. Yeah, but, good segue to your meeting with Harvey. But Harvey, uh, you know, he came into this being very aggressive and yelling and screaming and his two publicists were there and he's like, why do you write this shit about me? Why do you write this shit? On brand, <laughs> on brand for Harvey. And I, uh, he says like, why do you write that I'm a bully? <laughs> and I'm sort of looking <laughs> at him. <laughs> Sorry, if he doesn't get the joke of it. Sorry. And he says, what have you heard about me? And I really had heard about sexual assaults. And I thought in that moment, you know, this is it. 
now or never, you know, you either step up or you sit down. And I said, I've heard you rape women. It was an off the record lunch. I was never going to tell that story. Ronan is the one who kind of induced me to, I didn't, <laughs> he, well, he sort of just used it. <laughs> I had told it to him. Uh, and um, he, you know, I ultimately, it's so funny. I, he, he, he answered, uh, I mean, he looked a little bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, oh, okay, like uh, the secret's out or? No, no, no. The secret didn't come out for 20 years. I mean, he knew he was an off the record lunch. No, but like, oh, you know, and you're going to come at me like that. Oh, and, got it. Uh, he's like, but he almost seemed pleased, honestly, a little bit like, okay, but this is going to be a real somebody worth fighting. <laughs> uh, and he said, uh, sometimes you have sex with a woman and afterwards they say it wasn't consensual and you have to write a check which was a yes, right? And what was funny and weird, fast forwarding 20 years. I think he, I mean, he considers that a defense, I think. I mean, obviously you get that too, that he I, I assumes what, it was consensual. And I don't then think he, they he believed that. I don't think he believed that. I think he just said that because that was his way of pretending that it was fine. I don't think he genuinely believed it was fine. I mean, you don't do that. I don't, I don't know, maybe in some part of his brain, he did say it's fine to himself, you know? I don't know. Publicists, you know, when it when he when the whole story came out later, I I told the story to David Folkenflik at NPR, and he called these two publicists who were there at the table, and we had talked many times over the years about this lunch because it was such a shocking moment that nobody was going to forget that lunch. Like it was every it was like a standing thing between me and the, do you remember the lunch? Like you know, I mean, people almost went over backwards in their chairs and. And sure. both of these publicists claimed they didn't remember the lunch. Uh, and David didn't use that material because he said I couldn't con confirm it. And I was really, really mad. And, you know, I confronted one of them and they swore up and down that they didn't remember. I knew they were lying, but they, they claimed. And then weirdly, there was this, I think it was the BBC frontline doc. I told the story. They went to Harvey for comment. Harvey was already in tremendous trouble with the law. And Harvey confirmed it. <laughs> and I thought in a million, all he had to do was say that didn't happen or I don't remember and they wouldn't have right. used it. But for whatever reason, he responded and said, you know, um, I, I, I'd heard the, I, I, I said in the interview, I, he didn't seem shocked when I said that. And he responded that he wasn't shocked because he'd heard the allegation before but it wasn't true. But I'm like, well, thank you for confirming <laughs> that I asked this question when you're two publicists. Of course, they don't want to admit they heard it because they continued to work for him for years. <laughs> so you heard the R word, you know, and you kept working for Harvey. So, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible story because if we had gotten that story when we were trying, but you couldn't just call Gwyneth Paltrow at that time. I mean, she wasn't going to come forward. Nobody was coming forward. He was much too powerful. He was attacked right. when his in decline. That's what happened. He went in decline and he was attacked from within his own company. His own guy leaked this memo that confirmed. And once you have that piece of paper, you're ready to go. I wish I'd broken the story. He knew we were out there. He had the arrogance and he was right for 20 years that we could, and we'd circle back every once in a while. You know, I'd call, somebody would be leave Miramax and I'd say, well, you know, or the Weinstein company, I'd say, what do you know? 
And they'd say, well, yeah, I know he wrote a settlement check. And I'd say, well, who wrote, who got the settlement? Well, I don't have a name for you. I mean, it was like groping in the dark, you know? And if you right. look at that episode that I did with Ronan on his podcast uh, and Ken Oletta from the New York, from the New Yorker was the other person. It actually made me feel better because I had really been thinking to myself, what could I have done? And when you listen to Ken Oletta, who had even gotten a name at one point and still couldn't get there, it was just so clear. It just wasn't going to happen until Harvey was weakened by his own financial failures. I mean, Harvey is hardly the only guy that we've been here heard about over the last several years. I mean, there's Cosby on uh, that whole situation. Was it hubris or is it, and I think, I think from what you're telling me, it's not just hubris or arrogance, it's knowledge that they're untouchable, either because they have so much money or power or people, or because of those reasons, people are unwilling to tell the truth that, uh, you know, it, it would take a phalanx of reporters and even they would be repelled. Well, things uh, changed though with Harvey. Things did change. I mean, I it, it became a world where we could write a story. We could just tell Disney we're doing a John Lasseter story, and we, we're really going forward now. You have twenty minutes to respond, and they instantly put him on leave. Or we publish finally about Roy Price, the head of Amazon Studios, and he's gone that day. That wasn't like that before. You know, these studios would dig in and deny. I mean, we had that with Warner's and when Kevin Sujahara story. Well, we can't prove it, and we don't know. And I feel like, really, how do we, how how is it that I know and you don't know what's going on at your own studio? It's amazing to me that these guys didn't have the good sense, and that was post Harvey, to get out of the way of a story that's in all they they have this gamble that they're going to take. She'll never get there. She's never going to get there. And you know what? We we often do. I'd say we almost always do. I'm trying to think if we there's one where we never got there, where we really wanted to get there. And there isn't. <laughs> I can think of right now. So gambling that we're not going to get there is a really bad strategy. And I have felt, you know, if somebody comes to me with a story, we're going to pursue. If it's a legit story, we are just not going to let it go. We're just not going to let it go. So don't make that bet. It's the wrong bet. And the, getting the Charlotte Kirk story about Kevin Sujahara, you know, that was almost a miracle that we got that, but we got it. It took more than a year. Uh, I just feel like it's easy for people to say, well, that's Hollywood. But when these things started happening, I had some real conversations with my wife and other women I know who say, oh, and they're very much not in show business. And they say, oh, and then they would tell me stories about their work lives mm -hmm. over the last 30 years. And I'm, I, I feel like, I, how do I put this? I'd like to think I'm a nice guy. I'm not inviting people to now write me or call and tell me all the terrible things I've done. But I can't believe all of these shenanigans were going on. But I'm a white male. And I have a very different experience of life than women have had over the last 20, 30 years. I think it's been incredibly eye-opening for those of us who are willing to listen. Um, do you I've had feel a lot of sources call me and say, you know, agents call me and say, Jesus, my wife started telling me these stories. I can't, and we all, we grew up with this stuff and it was like the cost of doing business. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, I never had to deal with an outright sexual assault, but of course I've been harassed, like really aggressively. And 
you just shrugged it and said it, you know, I guess this is, you know, the cost of doing business. Well, do you feel like you and other people like Ronan have had an impact on that? Absolutely. I credit the ladies and the team at the New York Times and Ronan and people, you know, a lot of newspaper people and reporters generally have gone after these stories and broken them. You know, I'm hardly the only one doing Me Too stuff. And I think it's an it's a duty to pursue those stories. No matter, you know, I've had an editor at one point, we were pursuing a guy who was, you know, alleged to have raped multiple women. He's not that well known. And it was very difficult. And the editor said, well, you know, he's not that big of a person that, and I said, did you hear me say rape? I mean, did you hear me say that word? I just am not letting somebody like that walk, you know, and he's certainly not, uh, not been arrested, but finally was fired. And, and again, tons of resistance, again, from Warners, resistance to doing the right thing. And, do, you know, the outcome, I could have told you ahead of time. I, don't, I didn't know we'd get rape victim on the record, but, you know, we did. So I'm running out of time. I want to transition to politics no. uh, because the president, speaking of rape, um, the president who has a history of sexual assault, and yeah. I'm comfortable saying that because it's accurate I mean, and himself i mean not deliberate, <laughs> deliberately but yeah, there is a lot of accusers yeah. Yeah. and that there's a lot I, I feel like there's going to be a lot revealed should we survive the next several weeks once he's gone uh do you I, well first of all thank you for engaging on twitter that's really how we enter i mean i've been listening to you for years but we've also interacted in twitter because we are I think at the same level of being appalled on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I appreciate your being vocal because you give credence to the rest of us. Uh, but in any event, um, what do you, what do you see moving forward? You know, in some ways it's a political story. Is it still a showbiz story given his tangential, uh, you know, quasi success in the show business? And will people pursue it? Uh, you know, do you have a take on any of that? He's facing litigation that's not going to go away. Uh, and I hope they succeed. I hope Jean Carroll and, and uh, you know, the multiple women who are pursuing that legal remedies succeed. I mean, I think it's a bigger picture. You know, Time's Up has maybe made some inroads in Hollywood and in other areas, academics and whatnot. It's it's an ongoing struggle. I mean, we've the stories that have gotten written are about the worst offenders, really. Um, and there's a lot of people who still aren't dealt with and in a lot of areas and fields, but it's also a separate issue. It's not just a broad employment thing, but it's a separate issue that we have a, a question of whether this guy is above the law. I mean, you see Bill Barr getting involved when he was attorney general to protect him from an, an credible assault allegation, which is not the people's business, and not certainly not the Justice Department's business. And that in and of itself is one, one of the, how many institutional norms that shattered and the appalling conduct of Bill Barr in, in that situation and the appalling conduct of, of the GOP to, to enable and tolerate this is a shocking, terrible behavior, uh, and, and not just in the sexual arena. So what, what we are seeing, you know, is obviously a giant moment in history. And where we go, I'm not sure, because we're a divided country. And some people have no, no relationship to truth or fact. And that's been a deliberate thing. If 
Fox News is the, you know, I mean, they're now tasting the, 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 the consequences of their own divorcing so many people from reality because the people who were divorced from reality are turning on Fox News. <laughs> it's, they're not right wing enough for the real QAnon lunatics, whatever they are. So we're, we're at a crossroads and I hope the country makes it. You know, it's interesting. We, for, we're a similar generation, I'll say. And um, I grew up learning about World War II and thinking that's history and thank God nothing like that could happen again. And, you know, those people must have been barbarians, whatever. I've been watching on via Twitter and other outlets video of the people who um, uh, trespassed uh, into Congress, into the Capitol building. And um, for sure, it looked like some Duck Dynasty people, if you will. But there were a tremendous amount of people who who gave video selfies people talking about it, who were literally medical doctors, attorneys, people who seemed fairly intelligent, fairly erudite. And I I'm I'm personally struggling with this notion that these people who have education, I mean, the GOP people who um, are so complicit have so many Ivy League degrees, it's unbelievable. And yet this is no guarantee of understanding facts and reality. And I know it's not your job to help me sleep at night, <laughs> but do you have do any, <laughs> do you, based on your experience, oddly enough in Hollywood, in a world where, you know, they, in a strange way, are very, while they pretend to have nothing to do with reality or it's all about fantasy, they are tremendously grounded in reality in the business world. I mean, do, do you have any words of wisdom because we're, we're wrapping up and I'm going to give you the opportunity to put a button on it? I do know that. I, I mean, I'm, I, do I just feel that we don't know what's going to happen in the next few days, certainly. But I do think that, that that episode at the Capitol is going to cause a, the GOP to rupture. Uh, yeah. I think Liz Cheney will run, try to run the new old GOP. And um, my hope is that that division hurts the GOP, <laughs> which would say you deserve to be punished, in my opinion. For sure. And that we can move forward. I mean, I, I think Joe Biden has his hands full. I don't know why he's 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 a real patriot to even want that job. Sure. And I I have a lot of worries about where it's going, as like any sane person would. Uh, and Did you ever think Mitt Romney would be the the hero in a I moment? Don't know. Well, given that, I mean, he's he's done the to me any it's minimum decency to have voted to hear witnesses, and he did vote to impeach. I'll give him partial credit. Yeah, maybe heroes a bit much, sorry. Yeah, he could have done more. Uh, but yeah, I mean, did, did I ever think I would ever agree with Liz Cheney on anything? No. <laughs> so. And her question, that's why you're the journalist and I'm just the podcasting lawyer. <laughs> um, and on that note, Tim Masters, thank you so much for spending time with me and for being uh, on Is That Really Legal? I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was Kim Masters, award-winning journalist, 
host of KCRW's The Business. You can get it as a podcast. Um, it's so great to have someone intelligent with integrity uh, reporting on show business, not for a short time, but for a career. And she knows the importance of relationships. Uh, it was just wonderful to have her. If you want to make any comments about this show or any other shows, go to isthatreallylegal.com and you'll see a place to leave me messages. I'd love to hear from you. Make sure that while you're doing that, you open up a box of Abe's muffins and stuff them in your mouth. They are allergen-free. They are delicious. Just buy and eat them. Celebrate our new president and vice president. There are now people in charge who are actually going to get something done. Take care of yourselves, wear masks, and get the vaccine when you can. We're all going to hang in together and make it together. So thank you for listening, and I look forward to bringing the next show to you soon.